You're listening to the Vision Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we're taking a closer look at the core values we're seeking to build in our community in South Louisville. Peace be with you. Amen. I'm uh, James Fields, the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Such a delight to have you all here. Today, uh, today is our final sermon in our sermon, seri- uh, our sermon series of our vision series. Um, in our vision series, we've been talking about what does it look like for us um, to envision as a church and where God is calling us. So as you know, please stand with me if you don't mind for the reading of God's word. We're going to read uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11, is where we'll find these words uh, written under the, from the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, uh, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated at this time. So for those who may be just joining us this week or just for a recap, we all need a recap of kind of what we're doing and what we're talking about here. Um, When we talk about um, leadership, and we're talking about vision, we're talking about two aspects of, of this. So the first aspect is leadership. Um, leadership is the aspect of vision. Um, and when you talk about leadership, you're asking this question, um, what are the things that we want to accomplish? In other words, it's saying this, doing the right things. It's putting yourself in, on a trajectory to get to the place where you want to go. And in, in any, good, with any good leadership question, leader, leadership questions are always asking this question. Is the ladder taking us to the right place? And or will the ladder take us to our intended goal? That's the aspect of leadership. Um, but in leadership, we're talking about vision. We're talking about where we want to go. And that's one of the things we're talking about through here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 for us as a church is exactly where we want to go. Um, our vision for this church is found in those scriptures. So if you want to say, Pastor Fields, where are you taking us? Ephesians 4, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And we'll We'll, we'll parse that out a little bit more as we move forward. But for leadership, you not only need vision, you not even know where you're going, but you need to also have values. So a second part of what we're looking at is not just leadership, but we're also looking at management. And management says this, what are the best ways to accomplish this? What are the best ways for me to accomplish the vision that I see where God is taking us? Another way of saying this is how can we best accomplish certain tasks or objectives? So if leadership is about doing the right things, management is about doing things right. Amen? And we want to be a church that's centered on doing things right. We don't want to just do things because they feel good or because they're popular. We want to do things according to God's word and according to the vision that he's given us for this church in South Louisville to reach South Louisville with the gospel and beyond. And the question that we ask here is, how do we climb the ladder? Or another way to say that is, what's the most effective way to climb the ladder? To that end, we have what I call the three M's. The three M's are simply um, our vision of what we want, the three M's of Carlisle's vision. And this comes from Ephesians chapter 4. So if you don't argue with me, argue with Scripture if you don't like what's on here. Um, But it simply says this. The first M says this. We want to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the first sim, missional engagement. Our vision is this. We envision a community that is thoroughly equipped and focused to reach our neighboring community with the gospel of Jesus Christ here in South Louisville and beyond. 
We're going to talk more about this today as this is the uh, place that we're actually going to talk about, the M that we're going to talk about this Sunday is missional engagement. What does that look like for us to do that in this community and why should we do that? The other M is multi-ethnicity or multi-ethnic. This comes from the part of the scripture that says to build up the body of Christ until we reach unity um, in the faith together. Um, it says this, we envision a community that reveals and exemplifies the gospel while celebrating the multifaceted nature of the kingdom of God. When I say multifaceted, I'm talking about the multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual, and look around, even the multi-generational, amen? Uh, people young, old, all around us, we want to be a church that is um, all of those aspects and have an aspect towards all of those things, the multifaceted nature of the kingdom of God. And then lastly, we want to be a church that's growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ. That's our third M, maturity. For this, we said we, we envision a community that's growing in unity and in our devotion towards and knowledge of Jesus. It is our desire to joyfully acknowledge human dignity and specifically the Mago Day in every person, regardless of their race, ethnicity, culture, political affiliation, or socioeconomic status. So this is our vision. This is what God has given us to, to go towards and to, and to accomplish as a church. But here's the question. How do we best do this? How do we best do this? Or, or even a better question is why? Why should we do this? Um, the first two weeks we looked at maturity. Um, last week we looked at the multi-ethnicity multi um, of, of the body of Christ. And this week we're going to look at missional engagement. Missional engagement. One of the things that's hard about this is that missional engagement is a lot of things you can talk about. Um, and today I'm not going to talk about the what of missions. Uh, the what of missions is simple. We're called to make disciples. We've been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to do so in Matthew 18. That's, that's what we're called to do. But I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to even focus on the how. The how is for us is going to be missional communities. And if you saw in your insert in your program, you should see that we have, we're signing up for those missional communities. We're, come on, I can get a whoop whoop for that. Um, praise God for that. You guys have been waiting for that. I've been waiting for that. We're starting to have those, multi, those missional communities, but those missional communities are actually going to be focused here in South Louisville. We're going to have 95% of our missional communities focused here because this is the place where God has planted us, and then we'll branch out from there. But the one thing I want to focus on today is not the what, not the how, but I want to focus on the why. Why should we pursue missions? Why should we be missionally engaged within the communities that we surround us and, and God has surrounded us in? Now, when I think about missional engagement, this is what I need you to think of. I need you to think of our sphere of influence. All of us have influence. There's no one in this room right now that doesn't have influence in your life. You have influence over friends, over neighbors, over family members, over coworkers, or even teammates. All of us have influence over someone in our lives. And when we talk about missional engagement, I don't want to just talk about what we've done but well, we want to be motivated from what has actually happened to us. See, one of the things the IRS does, they allow deductions for charitable giving each and every year. Uncle Sam gives uh, folks a break on what they owe him when they show him, when they show, uh, the, when they show the government that they have supported a 50C3 uh, organization. People get credit for supporting an organization that is set up to serve other people. And the IRS gives credit to people based on what they have done to help someone else. And you see what the government will do with your charity, God will do at also at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, here's the deal. 
You and I owe God a whole bunch. We owe God, not, not only for our salvation, but we owe him for our mercy, his mercy, his forgiveness, his love, and there will be a payday. But on that day, God not, will not be allowing for charitable donations. You see, while all our good deeds appear to, prove, to provide credit and therefore serve as a deduction on the bill that we owe God, the payment can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ himself. His virgin birth, his sinless life, his fulfillment of the law on our behalf, and his sacrifice for our sins. The bill can only be paid and satisfied in Jesus. What I hope and I pray that our, the reason of our why for missional engagement is similar to what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 14. In this verse, this is what Paul says. He says this, starting at verse 14. It's in your program if you want to follow along with me. He says this, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. So that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Verse 16, from now on, then we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed, he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Verse 30, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal to us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, before we jump into the text, I just want to help us understand where we are. Paul in this, in this, in this, is writing to a church um, in, the New in the New Testament church called Corinth. And he's writing to a, a church that's divided. Anybody know about divided churches? He's writing to a church that's divided, fighting and division that's happening in the church, um, specifically in, in 1 Corinthians. And his message is clear to them that there is one Lord Jesus and we're all on the same team. In 2 Corinthians... He's also talking about fighting and division, but this time it's not within the church. It's actually from outside the church. And Paul has some naysayers. So the young folks might say he has some haters. Paul has some haters who's trying to discredit his witness, and he's writing to defend himself against these accusations. And Paul, and Paul in all his wisdom, he's giving them an understanding of why he does the things that he does. Why he has been persecuted? Why has he been enslaved? Why has he been ostracized? Why has he forsaken um, the 30 plus years that he served learning under the Jewish law in order, to gain, in order to serve Christ? He gives us his synopsis and his testimony in verses 14 through, through, through 20. And if you don't hear anything else from me today, this is, hear this one thing. That in our union with Christ, sinners who believe the gospel have died to sin and have been raised to walk in a new way of life. If you are in Christ, you have died to sin 
and you've been raised to walk in a new way of life. I think that deserves an amen. God is not always the God who does new things. There's no common copies with God. And if you don't think so, just look at your, look at your fingerprints on your hands. God in his, in his, sovereign, in his sovereignty and in, in his reign, he's, he's so big and grand to create, create everything, but he's also so unique and so um, he has such intricate detail into the things that he's created that he creates the very things that he has, especially human beings, with unique, de- with unique detail and precision. I love this because here in this, in this passage, we see three effects of the gospel from our brother Paul. Look with me in verse 14. Paul was captured by the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. Now, I don't know your story. I don't know how you came to Christ. You may be in process. You may have already done it, or you may be even wanting to do it to get today. And I say yes and amen to all of them, if you're in any three of those stages. But notice what Paul's motivation was. He was motivated by Christ's love for him. And church, if we're going to be on mission in this neighborhood, if we're going to be on mission for the, and be in sync with God, it always has to come from a motivation for God's love for us. You see, Christ pursues us first. God always takes the first initiative. We said this last week, but I'll reiterate it. In Genesis 3, Adam intentionally sinned, but yet you also see how God intentionally pursues. In the Bible, the Bible says Adam, well, after he sinned, he heard the sound of God's pursuit, and it sounded like God walking in the garden, and he hid himself among the trees of the garden, and, and he hid himself behind the tree. And I love that fact because it reminds us that in sin, it puts us to a place of shame. It puts us to a place of hiding from God, but 2,000 years later, he sends his son not to hide behind the tree, but to hang on the tree to hang on the tree for the forgiveness of all, for your sin and for my sins. Notice the question that he asked in Genesis 3. Remember, where are you? This is the most inconspicuous question because it's not a question of, of location. God knows exactly where Adam is because when he spoke, Adam heard it. It's not a question of location, but it's one of distance. It's not a question of place, but it's a question of proximity. It's not a question of ignorance, but it's a question of compassion. It's not an inquiry to find out where Adam is, but it's an invitation for Adam to be real with God and to say, God, I'm not with you. See, God graciously asked Adam the most important question, where are you? Because the most important thing for God in this, at this time is not retribution. He didn't say, Adam, what did you do? He didn't say, Adam, you, what did you do? You did wrong, therefore you get punished. He didn't even ask Adam, why did you do it? He's not looking for a reason from Adam. He's not even, he didn't even say, what are you going to do about it? He's not even asking Adam to, 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 to produce an outcome or to do something for what he already did. The question that God, that God asked Adam is the most important question because the question that God asked Adam, is a, it, it reveals the heart of God, is in that God is not concerned about retribution. He's not concerned about reason. He's not concerned about restitution. God is most concerned about relationship. And he's saying, Adam, where are you? You're not with me, son. What happened? And the implied answer, as we can already know, is that Adam is not with God. You see, not only does God pursue us, 
but God also pursues us despite our resistance. Not all of us came one. Everybody that becomes a Christian don't want to become a Christian. <laughs> we, we all were running. We all weren't looking. No, no one was looking for God. We're all like Adam hiding behind the tree, ashamed, guilt-ridden. But God in his graciousness invites us to come out of hiding with all of our sin, with all of our failures, and come to the one true living God who loves us, who cares for us, and who can satisfy us and restore us and reconcile us by the blood of his son. Amen? You see, Christ pursues us not only, his pursuit is not only uh, despite our resistance, his pursuit is also despite our weakness. 1 Corinthians chapter 126 says it best. I love what Paul says here. He reminds the Corinthians, remember this divided church? He says this in verse chapter 1, verse uh, 26 of Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not, even, not many of you from a noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring about, to bring nothing, what, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that it may be order as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I not only have a God who pursues me, I have a God who pursues me even in my resistance of him, but I also have a God who pursues me despite my weakness. Adam, um, Adam was pursued by God despite um, him running from God and hearing God walking in the garden. Um, Noah was, was, was pursued by God to, bu to build in obedience to God's decree um, even though the forecast said it wasn't going to rain. Adam was pursued by, by Abraham. Abraham was pursued by God despite his weakness with, by three visitors who encouraged him to believe that he would be the father of many nations, even though he didn't even have one son yet. Moses encountered God in his weakness at the burning bush. Jacob encountered uh, God's, uh, God's weakness through wrestling with him all night and losing to God. Joseph found God in his weakness by holding on to a dream that was 13 years too late. Peter saw, um, hold on to his vision from God as having a vision from God to eat meat, even though he was told from a, from the very young, uh, from a young, young age that he couldn't eat those types of meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Jesus himself was met by God even in his own weakness, being, being ministered by angels, even after the temptation that he had encountered with Satan um, after 40 days of fasting. You see, this is a great question for us as we, as we go forward. It's this, what is your greatest motivation for serving Jesus? What is your greatest motivation? You see, Paul was motivated by God, God's um, great love for him. He was motivated because he realized that God gave, um, he realized that God gave everything to him. And therefore, he could, he could give a little something to others. He was motivated. The word here, the Greek word here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says this, is for the love of Christ compels us. Another translation says it controls us. And the Greek word that's used here is pressure that causes action. It is passion that leads to action. So what Paul is saying here is that, listen, for the love of Christ compels us, meaning that this is a reaction that you just can't control. It is a reaction 
that God causes in you that flows out of you because of God working and pursuing you with his grace. I love this. I love this. It's it's like uh, 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 my kids at home when they uh, are brushing their teeth and the toothpaste is almost gone. You know, y'all know what I'm talking about. The toothpaste ain't there. And they say, Daddy, we don't have no toothpaste. And me being the cheap guy that I am, I say, no, there's some more toothpaste in there. So what do I do? I go to the toothpaste and I go at the bottom and I start squeezing it up from the bottom all the way to it gets to the top. Because I don't want to pay another $250 for another, another tube, uh, but that's okay. Um, this is the same thing. It, it, what this Greek word is um, saying that there's a pressure. There's something that happens to you that causes an action from you. And this is what Paul, he says, listen, I'm compelled by God. I can't help but love God. I can't, talk, I can't help but to talk about him. I can't help but to share him. I can't help but to know him because the love of Christ, the love of God, his great goodness towards me compels me. It controls me to no other action than self, uh, self-sacrificial service to him. You see, the gospel is not only what happens to you, but the gospel is also your response to what has happened to you. The gospel is your response to God. If God is the one who acts first, then you have to have a response. You can't just sit there and be dead because the Bible says, as we look in verse 17, that you are a new creation. You're no longer dead in sin. So if God, by his grace, works on your behalf when you don't deserve it, there has to be a response. That's why we come in here and raise our hands and praise Jesus every Sunday. We worship him because there's a response to the grace that God provides. Amen? Listen to me. God God has been good. And listen, the good thing about this grace is that you don't have to wait until everything is all right. You can praise him even if Sister Sister Ada is in the hospital. We can praise God right now for her healing because there is a pressure. There is a pressure that causes a response of praise. Our God is a healer, and he is a savior. He is a redeemer and restorer of mankind. And he proves it specifically in verse 21. He says this, he says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but this is Paul's testimony. I believe that when Paul wrote those verses in in verse 21, I think he was thinking about himself. A Pharisee of the Pharisee, a a, a man of a noble birth, a man who, who who knew the law inside and out. The, the one who was a persecutor against the church, the one who was tearing down the very church that God was trying to establish. He went from being an enemy of, of the church to actually being the strongest um, supporter and missionary for the church. Listen, only God can do that. Only God can do that. See, God takes the first step towards us. Scripture indicates that re- regeneration must come before we can respond to effective calling with saving faith. So even though we respond voluntarily, even though we respond voluntarily to God's kindness, God's work of regeneration reaches into our hearts to bring about a response that is absolutely certain. And when I say regeneration, this is what I mean. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. That, in other words, Nicodemus called it being born again. Jesus called it being born again in, in uh, G, uh, John chapter 3. You see, we, know, we play no active role in this. It is a work of God. As Nick read earlier from Ezekiel 36, this is what he says. He says, a new heart I will give you 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of the heart of flesh, the, the heart of flesh and, and the stone, excuse me, I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, and be careful to observe all of my ordinances. This is God's word. Notice what he says in verse, verse 15. And he died for all. What does this mean? This means simply that Christ died for all who died in him. One has died for all, therefore all have died in him. I love this because there's a law um, that we have in the legal world. It's called double jeopardy. And it simply says that you can't be tried twice for the same crime. And believe it or not, Jesus has already been tried for your crimes. So you are no, under no obligation to the flesh because God has already pronounced a sentence on your, your sins through Jesus. You see, your sins have already been judged. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, there is no condemnation against those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, no shame, no, 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 no suffering, no, no, no shame that should be put on you to make you feel otherwise than being a child of the king. He says, so if you are in Christ Jesus, don't allow the flesh to pronounce guilt upon you. You have no obligation to it in Christ. So not only was Paul captured by this gospel, he was also changed by it. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we know him, uh, we know him no longer in this way. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and see, the new has come. What Paul is, is giving her here is a doctrine of imputation. And a doctrine of imputation simply says this. It's a mutual exchange where, two, where both parties are equally affected forever. They're forever changed. It's a mutual exchange where both parties are forever changed. In other words, it's, it's, it's something that belongs to you, but is given to someone else. God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us because it does. He represented us in Genesis 3. And therefore, it belongs to all of us. But God also thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, so, so, as, so as it relates to us um, based upon our understanding of who he is and accepting him as Lord and Savior. I love this. I've seen this at different times in my life. One time in particular is in marriage. Marriage, you come before uh, sweaty and, and nervous and all these other things. You go before your bride or you go before your groom and you make covenantal vows with one another. You make vows with one another um, in order to uh, give to them your pledge of allegiance for them to death do our part. And then the other person does the same. There is a mutual exchange where both parties are forever affected or changed. Another example of this could be even an adoption where you adopt a child where you go and get, some, you get a child that maybe is not your own, or you bring someone into your family who's maybe not your own. Again, it's the same concept. Mutual exchange where both parties are forever changed. We've had the joy of even experiencing this in our own lives. I know that you guys have heard me say often, you've seen me with three uh, of my children, uh, Naomi, Elliot, and Luke, but we actually have a fourth uh, adopted daughter uh, who's actually with us right now. Uh, her name is Kayla. There she is right there. Uh, she's visiting us from Princeton. Um, 
by the grace of God, Kayla came into our life um, not um, because of um, our own kind of um, under some, some really hard situation. Um, her mom passed away um, and, and while she was at Princeton and when she was a sophomore. And my wife and I knew Kayla, um, and she was a babysitter for us, and uh, she was a, fr- a part of our student ministry at the time. And God put it on our heart that we need to go, take, we need to go to look after her. So we did, and uh, we went to Maryland. She graciously opened her home to us. We cried with her. We've uh, stood by her. We've loved her well and seen her grow. Um, she's at medical school now at Robert Wood Johnson up at uh, um, New Jersey. So we thank God for what God is doing in her life. But, but that exchange was real for us. See, our life isn't, it's not, it's not just a one-time thing where we say, hey, we'll help you out just for now, and, you know, after you get on your feet, we'll just see you later. No, Kayla's a part of our family. She's a part of us. And if I could, I would give her the last name Fields, but I know she'll get married eventually, so we will have to change it anyway, so we don't have to do that. But she's a part of us. And when you see us, you see her. And when you see her, you see us. It is this imputation, what God does. He, 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 he not only takes out your sins, he not only takes the, the wrong things about you, but then he gives you everything that's right in Christ. He, he, he not only takes away the shame and the guilt, but he gives you peace and he gives you holiness and he gives you the ability to do the things that he's actually calling you to do. I love how one theologian puts it. He, he, said, it's this, he said it this way, not just, salvation isn't just um, as if we never sinned, but it's just as if we've, never, we've always obeyed. It's not just as if we've never sinned. We talk about this a lot. Give your sins to Jesus. Give your sins to Jesus. That's true. But also, what's coming to you? What's coming to you is a righteousness from Christ. And, that, and before God, the eyes of God and the sight of God, it's, it's as if you've always obeyed him from the jump. He doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see your shortcomings. He sees you in Christ, and in light of Christ, that means you've always obeyed from the very beginning. I don't know about you, but that's good news. That's good news not only for me, but that's good news for me to share to a, to a community and a world that needs to hear that message. That not only can your sins be taken away, but you also can be given new life in Christ to be a new creation according to verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. The new has come. In Christ, new creation. We're not just forgiven, but we're changed into a new creation. In the Greek, this this word new creation means a continuing condition of fact. It's a new spiritual perspective. Jesus puts it this way. He says, you don't put old wine into old wine skins, but you put new wine into new wine skins. And what Jesus is saying there is that the spirit of Christ, when it's given, is not given, it's given to you, yes, in your mortal body, but it's given to you under the power and the authority of Jesus and through his righteousness, not only just to, oh, not only to receive it, but also to obey it, to obey the word that Christ has given you. I love this. I love this because there is assurance in Jesus. There is assurance in him. God desires to change us from self-centered believers to God-centered laborers because our death in Christ is not only a death to sin, but it's a resurrection to a new life of righteousness. There's a story about a lady who got on a train. There were a lot of trains at the train station, but she had 
asked someone which train she should get on because she was nervous to get on the wrong one. They told her which train she should get on, and she followed their directions. But once she got on the train, uh, she still was nervous. She wasn't completely sure that she was on the right train. So wanting to be sure, she asked the lady who was sitting next to her. She said, excuse me, miss, is this the right train to go to St. Louis? She said, yep, you're on the right train. So the lady went and sat down, but she started thinking to herself. Maybe the woman she had asked was on the wrong train too. So she decided to check with somebody else. She turned to the man sitting behind her and said, sir, is this the train to St. Louis? Yes, ma'am, this is the train to St. Louis. She, her heart felt a little better, but the man didn't look too smart. So the lady found herself looking, feeling uncertain, and with, without a question, she didn't know where to go. But just at that moment, uh, the conductor came down the aisle, and the woman said, sir, am I going to St. Louis? Am I on the right train? And he said, yes, ma'am, you're on the right train to St. Louis. I'll take you there as soon as we get the engine running. The lady laid back, and she went to sleep. You see, hearing from the person next to us, next to her, is nice that she was on the right train, but that's not enough. Hearing from the nice man behind you is nice, but that's not enough. Hearing from the pastor say, I think you're a Christian, is nice, but that's not enough. You see, but when the conductor comes through, when the one who's driving the train comes through, when the one who knows what he, know, he knows what he's talking about comes through and tells you that you're on the right train and you're going in the right direction, that's enough. See, sometimes we're gonna, you're going to check your feelings and you'll feel safe, but th sometimes that's not enough. Some days you're going to be living right, but when, but when something happens wrong in your life, that, it seems like that's not enough. But when Jesus says, I guarantee you eternal life because you placed your total faith in my finished work, brothers and sisters, that's enough because he's the one who's driving the train. You see, Paul was a new creation in Christ because Christ saved him from himself. Christ came to him personally. The, the man who, the one person whom he sh probably should have avoided, he actually pursued. And through, his, and through his salvation in Jesus, through Paul's transformation, that gave hope to anyone and everyone else that no one could, should be excluded in Christ. In Christ, now in Christ, we are eternally secure in his resurrection because he resurrected from the dead. Because the tomb is empty, you are eternally secure. You are eternally accepted because of his righteousness, his imputed righteousness to you. You are totally accepted. There's nothing that you can do to make you unacceptable before God if you are in Christ Jesus. And not only that, you are eternally assured through his, through his, resurre through his resurrection and through his reign, through his, his ascension up to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father through all, all eternity to give you assurance, making um, intercession for you next to the Father. And finally... We are eternally connected with the eternal word because of him who sovereignly reigns in our place. You see, we're reconciled to God. We have to remember that God takes the initiative through Christ and always reconciles us to himself. A good thing about this to remember is that you don't have to reconcile friends, but only enemies. You don't necessarily have to reconcile friends, but only enemies, those who have been totally in, uh, separated from one another. Lastly, not only Paul was captivated by the gospel, not only was he changed by the gospel, but lastly, in verse 20, Paul was called as an ambassador. He was called as an ambassador. See, there's an American embassy in England, England located in that building. is all of the power of the U.S. government in one square block. 
everything needed from an American standpoint is within that building. Because when it speaks, it speaks on behalf of the government. Suppose another world leader said to the president, let's have negotiations. The president can say, I've already have an ambassador in your country. What he or she would be implying is that to talk to an ambassador is the same thing as talking to him. The Bible says that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And when people hear from us, they have actually heard from God. He has given us delegated authorities to speak on his behalf. How can we be ambassadors with our mouths closed? He has given us the privilege of being a spokesperson for him. Verse 20 says it this way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So what is an ambassador? Ambassador is an living embodiment of the gospel. It's not just a messenger, but, but an ma- ambassador is a representative. As ambassador is a person who doesn't just bring a word, doesn't just bring a word, but they, are, they, 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 want, they embody the word. They, they are the word before a dying world. Who is an ambassador? Ambassadors are Christians, and it's a privilege given to us by God himself. It's not based on, on whose we are. It's not based on what we do, but it's based upon whose we are. I like how one pastor puts it. He says, have, uh, being around a hospital doesn't make you a patient just as much being around a church doesn't make you a Christian. It's a good word for us to be reminded of. But if you are in Christ, you are an ambassador. And finally, what does an ambassador do? An ambassador does not speak on his own opinion or her own opinion. An ambassador does not speak to please an audience. An ambassador does not speak on his or her own authority. But what an ambassador does is an ambassador speaks on behalf of the king or the one who sent him. An ambassador speaks only what, has, what he has been commissioned for him or her to stay. I love this because this gives us a good understanding of what it means for us as we move forward and as we pray that we are a living examples. We are a living embodiment of Christ's ministry and of Christ um, saving us is a living witness for us as a church, but even for this community. We thank God that in his, recula- in his being ambassador, means that there are certain things that have changed. Our standing before God has changed. We've shifted from unrighteousness to righteousness. Our our position before God changed. Our relationship with him has changed. We move from one of conflict to reconciliation, ensuing peace and communion with God. And our taste buds have changed for Jesus. Our want to has changed for Jesus. Doesn't mean that you don't want to do certain things in this life. You don't have an appetite for certain sins in this life. But it does mean that as you follow Jesus and as you learn of his great love for you, those things start to become strangely dim. And they start to lose their taste and they start to lose their savior flavor in your life. And lastly, our perspective is altered. We are no longer focused on outward appearances, but we are focused on a radical interior um, change that God, only God can make in our lives. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you and praise you uh, for you being a good God and Savior. We thank you, God, that you've given us and called us to be on mission, not because of what we do, but because of whose we are. So, Father, even now, we ask in the name of Jesus that you will be with us and guide us, Lord. Father, be with us even as we are on mission. Thank you, God, that we are on mission because your gospel compels us. It is a pressure that causes action within our lives. Father, and I pray, Lord, that if we have not been responding to your gospel, if we Help us all to respond to your gospel. Um, There are two types of people in this world, Lord, and 
Uh, I pray like that both of them um, would, um, both of them need Jesus. They both of them need to look to Jesus, um, regardless of who those people are, Lord. So we look to you. We look to you for salvation. We look to you for hope. Uh, we look to you for restoration. We look to you as you say you are and revealed yourself in the scripture as a glorious God and King. We do love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.